This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Management of the Intubated Asthmatic Patient by Dr. Gerhard Wolf and Craig Smallwood. Hi, I'm Gerhard Wolf. I'm an attending in the Division of Critical Care Medicine in the Department of Anesthesia. My name is Craig Smallwood and I'm a respiratory therapist. And today we're going to talk about uh, how to ventilate a patient with asthma. Indications for intubation. This is an eight-year-old patient uh, who came to the hospital intubated and ventilated. He has known asthma. He's had a couple of asthma attacks before. He's actually been to the hospital a few times. And uh, today he came to an outside hospital uh, in status asthmaticus. And uh, he was intubated because the colleagues there thought he would be in impending respiratory failure. This may be actually a good time to pause and talk about the indications of intubating a patient with asthma. We typically try to maximize medical management before we proceed with intubation. Medical management would be continuous albuterol NEBs, and maybe the administration of magnesium, uh, a terbutylene infusion, and corticosteroids. And when we see that the medical management fails, that a patient is getting more tired, has impending respiratory failure, or is in a position where he cannot protect his airway anymore and he's obtunded, or he has severe acidosis, that also may lead to him being, being obtunded, then we typically would think about intubating him. Initial ventilator settings. So let's take a moment and assess this patient. Uh, we can look at the monitor. His heart rate is 130, so it's quite typical that he's tachycardic. He's also gotten a lot of beta agonists. His blood pressure is normal. His SAT is 94% on 40% oxygen. So let's assess this patient. Um, he's intubated, he's still paralyzed, he got a dose of paralytic uh, during transport. So let's take a listen. I would say he sounds very tight. There's really not a lot of good air movement here. Um, there is very few inspiratory noises and also very quiet expiratory noises. Uh, surprisingly, I can't appreciate a lot of wheezing at the moment, and I think that's because he's so obstructed that I can't even hear any wheezes. Okay, so... Could you take us through the steps on how to set up the ventilator in this patient with asthma? Absolutely. So there's a couple of key components I'm going to go over. Um, the first one I'm going to do is just uh, mention secretion clearance. Uh, this is one of the simplest to treat an asthmatic, and that's also one of the most forgotten. Um, asthmatics, just like most patients who are intubated, cannot clear their own secretions. So it's important, it's important for us as clinicians to take on that responsibility. Um, you may be surprised at times as to how much good you can do by just clearing some mucus plugging or just mucus in general. Um, and that may actually reduce some component of air resistance you're seeing on the ventilator. So that means regular suctioning? <clears throat> yes. Um, in terms of assessing the ventilator, uh, a couple of basic things. We want to look at the tidal volume and the compliance of the, of the patient. Right now, uh, our compliance is pretty low. Um, that's probably due to a mostly resistive compo component of the asthma. Um, the pressures we're using right now to ventilate this kid are pretty high. Uh, we're using 40 over 5, and again, that's just forcing the air past the airway obstruction that's associated with uh, asthma. PEEP. 
Positive End Expiratory Pressure. For children with asthma who are intubated, one of the things that we'll frequently monitor closely is auto-peep, or auto-positive end expiratory pressure. Auto-peep is a measure of pressure at end exhalation that describes a difference between the set peep and the actual measured end expiratory peep right before the next breath starts. You can see here on the screen we have two flow waveforms, one for a child with asthma and one who is exhaling normally. You can see during the blue portion, or the expiratory phase of the breath, that the flow does not reach zero before the next breath starts for the child with asthma. This is because the airways are narrowed and there's uh, an inappropriately small time for the flow to exit the lungs before the next breath starts. This will result in an elevated positive end expiratory pressure above that which is set, and we describe that as auto-peep. Some people call this breath stacking, obstruction, or auto-peep. And you should monitor this closely and try to adjust your settings appropriately to eliminate as much gas from the lungs during expiration. If we were to look at the pressure waveform here, you'd see that the peep is a little bit beyond that which is set on the ventilator. Compare that with the child who is normal on the flow waveform, who's able to exhale fully, and you can see clearly that the blue portion, the exhalation portion of the flow waveform, reaches zero long before the next inspiration begins. To assess that on different ventilators, um, the, the actual way you do that may be different. And then I'm going to do an expiratory hold. An expiratory hold is basically um, just a prolonged period of time that it's going to allow the patient just to exhale and measure the pressure at that point in time. So let's do that. So right now, our auto peep is 10. Um, our actual extrinsic peep is set at 5. So there's a difference of 5 that the patient is actually responsible for uh, due to lung mechanics. So what does the auto peep really tell us? This patient is paralyzed. And what does it tell us? Does it tell us that we don't want to send the extrinsic peep on the ventilator higher than the auto peep? So peep is a little bit of a controversial issue with asthmatics. Um, right now our patient is paralyzed, so one of the issues is spontaneous breathing, which we don't necessarily have to worry about. Um, but if he, was, if he or she was, then what we'd want to do is probably adjust our extrinsic peep, that is the, the ventilator set peep, to match the patient's auto peep. Um, what that does is allows a very small pressure gradient within the lungs so the patient can trigger the ventilator easily and not have to use an excessive amount of energy to breathe. So in summary, there's different ways to think about PEEP and auto-PEEP in a patient with asthma when he's intubated and ventilated and paralyzed or not paralyzed. In a paralyzed patient, it seems that the level of extrinsic PEEP that we give should be just lower than the level of auto-PEEP or some people would not give PEEP to a patient who's with asthma who is paralyzed at all. If the patient is breathing spontaneously, then the auto-peep becomes pretty important. The level of extrinsic peep should pretty much match the level of auto-peep so that the patient can trigger the ventilator. Respiratory rate and expiratory time. So we found the level of peep, and uh, what, what expiratory time or what respiratory rate do you use? So one of our other goals when treating asthma is uh, maximizing the amount of time that we're giving our patients to exhale the breath. With a mechanical ventilator, we can always force the breath in and help that, but we can't always force the breath out. Um, so to, to facilitate breath removal on the expiratory side of the, of the curve, we like to decrease the, the respiratory rate, and really what we're doing is allowing more time for exhalation to occur. And that is actually quite counterintuitive most of the times because the patients with asthma when they're intubated they're typically hypercarbic and what often happens is that the level of carbon dioxide rises and in reflex the respiratory rate is increased in order to increase the minute ventilation 
but since they have obstructive physiology, often that leads to more air trapping and uh, that the level of CO2 actually rises. So here we have to do the opposite. We have to decrease the respiratory rate, uh, let the breath uh, fully exhale, and then by this increase the level of CO2 clearance. So how do you know if an expiratory breath is long enough? Um, two ways. One, we can assess the autopeep like we discussed earlier. The other uh, key component in monitoring asthmatics on the ventilator is the flow time graphic. And here it's the middle one. Um, you want to pay close attention to the expiratory phase of that breath. Um, what we want to do is we want to see the flow come back completely to baseline before the next breath occurs. Now, this might not be necessarily always possible, depending on the severity of the bronchoconstriction, but you always want to try to maximize that exhaled breath. So in the flow time graphic on the expiratory phase here in blue on this ventilator, um, we can see there's a good peak exhalation flow here, and then you can kind of see that it kind of slowly comes back to not quite zero, but there's still quite a bit of flow in there before the next breath occurs here in the red portion of the breath. When you're, when you're decreasing the respiratory rate or you're just increasing the amount of time that the patient has to exhale, it's important to look at the exhalation part of the flow time graphic. Basically, if the expiratory flow comes back to zero or comes closer to zero before the next breath occurs, then you've done the right thing. If it didn't make a difference, then you're probably just as fine being at the high respiratory rate. What are typically respiratory rates that you've used in asthmatics? Uh, depends on the patient size. So obviously if they're, if they're smaller, they have smaller tidal volumes, and therefore we can get away with a little bit higher breaths. So a respiratory rate anywhere between 10 or 15 breaths should be actually adequate in this patient, but it really depends on the expiratory time. Tidal volume. The general mechanical ventilation strategy for asthmatics employs a high tidal volume and low respiratory rate. Tidal volumes are typically set from 8 to 10 mLs per kilo, although in some cases higher tidal volumes may be required. The rationale for the higher tidal volume strategy is simple. Any patient requires a certain minute ventilation, that is the respiratory rate times the tidal volume, in order to maintain adequate gas exchange. And since the respiratory rate has been decreased in some cases in order to facilitate emptying of the lungs, the tidal volume must be increased in order to maintain a reasonable minute ventilation and ensure adequate removal of CO2. Inspiratory pressure. We talked about how you find the PEEP and how you find the right respiratory rate. What do you do with the inspiratory pressure? How do you find the right inspiratory pressure? So one of the things we like to do is, you know, we want to use the least amount of ventilatory pressure as we can at all times. In asthmatics, because they have such a high airway resistance, oftentimes we'll need to use very high levels of PIP or a high PIP to, to force that breath in past the obstruction. In this setup at the moment, the PEEP is 5 and the delta above PEEP is 35. So the peak inspiratory pressure is 40. We should make an important distinction here that when we talk about lung protection and minimizing the degree of injury that we impose on the patient with the mechanical ventilator, we need to talk about plateau pressure. Um, plateau pressure refers basically to the alveolar pressure in the lungs, and that's really the pressure we need to keep at or below 30 centimeters of water. Um, our PIP or our peak inspiratory pressure may be greater than that, um, but because the, the airway resistance is so high, it's not necessarily going to be transmitted to the lung periphery. So Craig, can you show us on how to measure the plateau pressure in this patient? To assess that on our patient right now, we'll need to do an inspiratory hold, our peak pressure is 35 plus 5, so that'll be a peak pressure of 40. That'll be the, the airway pressure in the circuit around here. Now the pressure at the alveolus inside of the patient may be less than that. We're going to do an inspiratory hold to attain a plateau pressure to obtain that measure. So here on the, on the pressure time waveform, you can see at the beginning of inspiration, we went from 5 of peak up to our peak inspiratory pressure of 40. 
And then because the, we allowed enough time and inspiration for the pressure to equilibrate in the whole system, that is the ventilator circuit and our patient, the pressure actually dropped from about 40 down to 20. Um, our plateau pressure on this patient is only 20 centimeters of water. The difference between the peak inspiratory pressure and the plateau pressure is going to be reflective of the airway resistance that's uh, part of the patient's airway disease. So in summary, although we measured a pressure of 40, a peak inspiratory pressure of 40 on the ventilator, this pressure of 40 may be actually more the pressure driven by the resistance of the system. The inspiratory hold maneuver tells us the plateau pressure, and as Craig said, the plateau pressure is what the patient is actually receiving. So we've done two hold maneuvers. We've done an inspiratory hold to determine the plateau pressure, and we've done an expiratory hold to determine the level of autopeak. Summary. In summary, these are the initial ventilator settings for the intubated asthmatic. For PEEP, measure auto-PEEP in paralyzed patients with an expiratory hold and set the PEEP lower than auto-PEEP. For respiratory rate, allow the patient to exhale fully and consider lengthening the expiratory time to facilitate alveolar gas emptying at end expiration. For tidal volume, choose an appropriate tidal volume, keeping in mind that if respiratory rate is decreased, tidal volume should be increased to maintain minute ventilation and appropriate gas exchange. And for plateau pressures, the goal in general is to maintain plateau pressures less than or equal to 30 centimeters of water, and this will require using an inspiratory hold in those subjects eligible to do so. Managing hypercarbia. Here's the initial blood gas that we just got back. The pH is 7.15, the pCO2 is 75, and the PaO2 is 200. So the patient has no problem with oxygenation, but he has a fair amount of uh, hypercarbia. So how would we address that? Let's ventilate more. Um, in an asthmatic, uh, what we want to do is give more time for exhalation. So I'm going to do two things. I'm going to assess our auto peep right now to kind of see what our baseline is. I'm going to press the expiratory hold and see what we get. So right now our auto peep is 15. Um, our set ventilator peep is 5. So there's an intrinsic peep of this patient of 10. So I'm going to decrease the respiratory rate. My goal there, Gerhard, is going to be to maximize the amount of exhalation time, hopefully eliminate a little more alveolar gas and ventilate a little bit better. So despite the fact that the patient is actually hypercarbic, we're going to go down on the rate in order to let him exhale further and improve CO2 clearance. So now we went with a rate from 30 to 24. Yep. And so that has markedly uh, lengthened the expiratory time. And now we should see the expiratory flow return to zero in order for exhalation to be complete. Is that what we find here? Not quite. So one of the problems with an asthmatic is you're probably not ever going to meet uh, a zero on your expiratory flow, but you'll get as close as you can. So right now when we did that maneuver, moving the rate down from 30 to 24, we got a little bit closer on the expiratory waveform. Um, here are the blue coming back almost to zero before the next breath starts. And we can do another expiratory hold here to assess the amount of auto-peep that we have with this rate. So we've, got, we've decreased the auto-peep from 15 to 12, indicating to us that we've reduced the amount of air trapping. And hopefully, when we get our follow-up blood gas, we've eliminated a little bit more CO2 and allowed our patient to be ventilated better. Hemodynamic considerations. Another thing I would like to mention in ventilated patients with asthma are the hemodynamic aspects. Often patients who are intubated in an asthma attack or with status asthmaticos have a fair amount of hemodynamic instability, and that comes from a variety of reasons. First of all, these patients may have been dehydrated 
because they've been wheezing for a couple of days at home and now they are behind on fluids. Um, also, they may have a little bit of a pneumonia going on or have some septic physiology. Then the amount of acidosis that they have may negatively impair, uh, impact their myocardium. And uh, also they may have, with their bronchial obstruction, increased pulmonary vascular resistance. So they have elevated uh, pulmonary artery pressures and that may also impair their overall cardiac output. Medications. Let's talk about the medical management. The mainstays of therapy here are steroids and beta agonists. And so the patient is at the moment getting intravenous steroids and we will give him beta agonists as well. And there's two ways we could give the beta agonists, uh, inhaled beta agonists or intravenous beta agonists. And usually the inhaled beta agonists are much more effective than the intravenous beta agonists. So now the patient's intubated. Before he was intubated, he was on continuous albuterol naps via inhaler. And now, uh, Craig, are you going to show us how to give inhaled beta agonists to this patient? Um, as soon as the patient is intubated, we need to continue with our bronchodilator therapy. Uh, there are a couple different ways we can do that. We can do it on the ventilator. We can also take the patient off the ventilator. Right now, because our patient's paralyzed, it's going to be important for us to maintain manual ventilation while we're administering the, the, the bronchodilator. Uh, here at Children's Hospital, we prefer to use MDIs or meter dose inhalers in line with the ventilator. Uh, this is safe, easy, effective, and it also minimizes the disconnects in the time that the patient's going to be off the ventilator. So possibly preventing uh, risk of infection and then also hypercapnia. I'm going to show you guys how to put it in. So our, uh, our blue spacer has two ends. Optimal placement is about 10 centimeters away from the endotracheal tube. One's just going to fit on the ventilator Y right here, and then the other end's going to fit on the inspiratory limb of the, the ventilator circuit. This white little adapter here is where the meter dose inhaler is going to fit into the top and it's going to allow me to actuate puffs and deliver the drug to the patient. So just like any MDI, it's important to shake up your canister thoroughly and allow probably 30 to 40 seconds between actuations to ensure 100% of the available dose is going to be getting to your patient. First puff. Do you need to synchronize it when the ventilator gives an inspiratory breath or doesn't it matter? So I think the best practice would be to wait for the beginning of an inspiration to try to make sure most of the dose goes down the endotracheal tube and not just through the expiratory portion of the circuit. And can you also put this adapter in here between the endotracheal tube and the actual ventilator circuit? You could, that's a good question. Um, the reason why we put it back here is if we put it after the patient Y in between the, the ventilator circuit and the endotracheal tube, we're gonna be increasing the amount of dead space that we're adding to the patient's circuit okay. and potentially uh, causing ventilator derangements. How often do you usually give the albuterol MDI? So it'll depend on the patient's condition, but here at Children's Hospital, we can give it as often as about once an hour. A variety of uh, regimens for sedation have been described in ICU patients Typically, uh, our patients are on a combination of morphine and midazolam infusions. In patients with asthma, we sometimes alter that and instead give a, a combination of both ketamine and midazolam. Ketamine as a sedative drug has the advantage that it also has bronchodilator properties. We typically use some midazolam in order to blunt some of the central effects of ketamine with that. One side effect of ketamine may be that the secretions are increased. So if we run into that, we sometimes have to stop the ketamine infusion.
One of the adjunctive therapies we can consider in treating asthmatics is the application of heliox gas. It's a gas that mixes helium and oxygen and allows a laminar, low-density gas to get past areas of obstruction and allow good tidal volumes to be exchanged in and out of the patient's lungs. Many ventilators allow you to apply this directly to the back and automatically do the calculations for you in setting the heliox in the front of the ventilator. Some may not. It'll depend on the equipment you have. The patient who's gonna be most likely to benefit from Heliox is that patient with low O2 requirements. This is gonna increase the, the amount of helium that can be added into the gas and also the chance that the laminar flow and good tidal volume exchange will occur. Helium comes in mixtures of either 80% helium and 20% oxygen or 70% helium and 30% oxygen. So if we hooked up helium to this patient, we would need to deliver 30% oxygen with the balance being helium. We would therefore want to deliver the helium-oxygen mixture of 70 to 30. Patients in the range of FiO2 of 0.5 to 0.7 or higher generally won't respond that well to a heliox administration. Helium administration is therefore really ideal for patients who do not have a high O2 requirement. It seems important to mention that the helium in itself can sort of trick the oxygen measurements of some ventilators. That's why modern ventilators have the ability to adjust for that. But if you use an older ventilator, that ventilator may not automatically adjust for helium and one of the things you may have to do is put it on an external oxygen analyzer to ensure that you're measuring the amount of oxygen that is being delivered to the patient. Heliox in studies hasn't really shown a clear benefit, so we don't really apply it to all the patients, but we sometimes use it in patients with asthma. What we think is important is to measure the response. So if you start a patient on Heliox and he's doing better, has improved flow, is moving air, his expiratory flow profile looks better on the ventilator, as blood gas improves, then he is clearly someone who responds to Heliox well. But if we start Heliox and really see no change after six or eight hours, then we stop the therapy and determine that the patient has not responded. Another therapy that's often discussed is the use of isoflurane. Isoflurane is a volatile anesthetic. It has very strong bronchodilatory effects. Um, we do use isoflurane in this unit. We have an anesthesia machine set up that we uh, use to ventilate the patient with isoflurane. But when using isoflurane, it is important to keep in mind that it has very strong hemodynamic uh, properties. It can cause hypotension. We often have to anticipate that, give volume, place a central line, start the patient with vasopressors. The use of isoflurane in patients with asthma is really beyond the scope of this talk. But uh, what we can say about it is that it has to be used with uh, caution and it has to be used in uh, by centers that have a lot of experience with it. Weaning. Now it's 24 hours later, and the patient has been intubated and ventilated since then. He's also received his intravenous steroids and his inhaled beta agonists. And we just got a blood gas back, and the new gas is now a pH of 725 and a CO2 of 60, with a PO2 of 180. So the pH has improved from 715 to 725 since yesterday, and the PCO2 has gone down from 70 to 60. So, Craig, what has changed on the ventilator? Sure. So when we're uh, assessing the asthmatic for ability to come off the ventilator or separate or decrease the amount of support, one of the key things we look at is the tidal volume. So since yesterday, as tidal volumes have increased dramatically, we're getting about 10 mLs per kilo now. We're still on the same pressure, so I think what we're going to do is decrease the amount of pressure and see what our tidal volumes are. So the tidal volumes have increased potentially because the compliance of the patient has changed. So it's time to wean. Yes. 
Let's take a listen and see what he sounds like. So in comparison to yesterday, I hear a lot better air movement. There's actually now inspiratory and expiratory wheezes, whereas yesterday I could hardly hear anything. And I think that's probably a function of the bronchial obstruction getting better. And now there's air going in and out and I actually can hear some wheezes, whereas yesterday I couldn't. So the patient is now wheezing as you would really expect from a patient with asthma. So what, what would we wean? So I just turned down the inspiratory pressure. Um, we're going to see what our televimes end up like there. And uh, if our patient continues to improve and uh, exhibits good spontaneous effort, on this ventilator the, the flow waveform and the pressure waveform here come up in yellow when the breath is spontaneously triggered by the, the patient. If that continues, we can start thinking about different modes of ventilation. We can transition to pressure support and uh, allow our patient to do most of the, the work to breathe. So as the patient got better, um, we just recently discontinued the neuromuscular blocking agents so the patient is no longer paralyzed and he's now breathing spontaneously. And we can see that as well as this ventilator, the flow curves have turned yellow, which means that the breaths are spontaneously triggered. It may look different on other ventilators, but the patient is now breathing. And we typically, I mean, the patient came to us uh, paralyzed, and since he was acidotic, we left him paralyzed. But we typically try to get the patients breathing spontaneously as soon as possible. And what can you summarize for us the benefits of spontaneous breathing in this patient? Sure. So with a positive pressure conventional ventilator like this, um, we, the clinicians, can use the ventilator to force the breath into the patient, but we can't always force it out. Um, in many patients, that's not an issue with asthmatics because most of their problem is exhaling the breath due to airway resistance. They're going to have a lot of trouble doing so. When we wake them up and allow them to spontaneously breathe, they're going to do two things. They're going to help the ventilator get the breath into their lungs, but then they can also use accessory muscles and uh, intercostal muscles to force the breath out. Um, and this kind of goes back to the, the auto-peep principle. And uh, if the patient's able to force the breath out, it's going to decrease the amount of auto-peep and uh, hopefully get them get better sooner. Sometimes what we observe is when we go from paralyzed to unparalyzed is that the patients get very tachypneic. Remember, when the patient was paralyzed, it was no problem to keep him at a low respiratory rate, like 10 or 12. And now that the patient is no longer paralyzed, he may be more awake and he may be inherently more tachypneic. So his respiratory rate may actually be quite high in comparison to what he was before. And sometimes that can uh, bring problems because now the rate is faster, the expiratory time is shorter, and again, air trapping may increase. So hopefully the bronchodilators and the steroids have kicked in long enough that the patient will tolerate being on a faster rate. Uh, this can sometimes be such a problem that we actually have to re-paralyze the, the patient or sedate him more. One of the key questions in a spontaneously breathing patient with asthma is always the question how to set the PEEP. Because remember, we can only really measure the auto-PEEP when the patient is paralyzed. So now that the patient is no longer paralyzed, we can't measure the auto-PEEP anymore because he probably wouldn't tolerate the expiratory hold that we would have to do for that. So as a general principle, we can only guess the auto-PEEP now, but we would want to match the extrinsic PEEP with the auto-PEEP that we think the patient has. So if we think the patient still has an auto-PEEP about 6 or 7, then this should be the level of extrinsic PEEP in order to allow the patient to bring it to trigger. If the auto-PEEP of the patient is 8 and the extrinsic PEEP is only 4 and the patient wants to trigger spontaneously, then he would over have to overcome the difference between auto-PEEP and extrinsic PEEP, which would be 4 in this case. So that's why we try to match the extrinsic PEEP with the auto-PEEP 
And uh, so if we think the order of PEEP is 8, we would roughly set a PEEP of 8 so the patient can trigger on this uh, PEEP and breathe spontaneously. So our patients have been spontaneously breathing. We've been maintaining them in a pressure control mode. Um, so we've been guaranteeing a respiratory rate of 24. Since our patient's now breathing and uh, we think the, the airway resistance is decreasing and the compliance is good enough that we can transition to a spontaneously breathing mode. I'm going to go ahead and transition our patient to pressure support and see if uh, our patient can tolerate that mode. Extubation readiness. We just got a blood gas back and now the pH is actually 7.35. The CO2 has almost normalized to 45 and the oxygenation is still good. So the patient is now in pressure support. So the difference between before where he was an SMB in pressure support and now pressure support is that every breath is pretty much triggered spontaneously. Uh, on this pressure support mode, the patient will determine his inspiratory time himself. And uh, the level of pressure support is now 15 over five. At what point would we think that the patient is uh, ready to extubate? So here we usually try to decrease the amount of pressure support um, to a minimum level um, and ensure that our patient's respiratory rate, their tidal volumes, and their oxygen saturation are all adequate. And if those things are maintained, then we'll consider taking out the breathing tube at that time. So I would think, just roughly speaking, in this eight-year-old patient, um, he should have a normal respiratory rate. He should have a fraction of inspired oxygen, no, no greater than 50. And he should have a pressure support level of about six or eight above a PEEP of five. And with that, he should not be tachypnic and have a normal blood gas. And then we could consider waking the patient up and extubating him. Um, just listening to him now, he's still wheezing. And I think that probably won't change. But um, when he's on low settings, I think it would still be worthwhile to extubate him. So let's try him on low settings and see how he's doing. So we've now watched the patient on these low settings for about an hour. We checked the blood gas, which is okay. And the settings are pressure support 8 over PEEP of 5. Uh, his respiratory rate is still adequate. Uh, he doesn't need more than 40% oxygen. He's fully saturated. So I think it's probably worthwhile waking him up and uh, trying to extubate him. That concludes our video on management of the intubated asthmatic patient. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.